Okay, mic check, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah, let's get it. And now, the number one most requested song on WQQR. Will you be going to the, uh, the pajama disco tonight? What? Hit me. It's a gash in my hand. Oh, dog, hit you with a gun. Oh, come on, man, give me some money. Now me, boys. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Adventures in Black Cinema. Can y'all believe we're on season three? Oh my God. Like, what the fuck? Where did the time go? We're almost at the 50th episode. Like, I can still remember doing this for the first time with Paid in Full. That was, you know, summer 2020 when the world was just in flames and it still is, but we're getting used to the flames, which is scary. And also what else can you do in some ways if you don't receive the help that you need? But yeah, I remember starting the podcast and this all just coming, I don't know, I wouldn't say, well, kind of full circle, because at time of recording, I'm about to show Paid in Full at Nighthawk Cinema at the new live Adventures in Black Cinema screening series, which is just bringing me so much joy. To me, it's honestly taking this whole idea to the next level, and there are more levels that I have in mind for the future. It's just such a great Great, beautiful step, and I'm so thankful to all of you for listening to the show and engaging with the show, and Amanda for approaching me to do a podcast. I mean, this is not something I would have done by myself, though it is something that I'm very natural at, talking about movies and shit. It is not something that I would have done, so thank you, Amanda, for this push and vote of confidence I will always owe this to you in so many ways. And (laughs) y'all, life has certainly changed since I last spoke with you. I mean, this whole episode, we're going to be talking a lot about love. And my love life has just been, there have been so many awakenings and growth and communication and messiness and just everything since the last time we had a little chat. And I am purposely recording this episode on a day 
where I don't know how things are going to end up. And then finishing the second half, like once we get to the nitty gritty, I think things will be really good. Um, Yeah, I'm going to have the confidence in myself and in this situation that things will be really good as long as trust and growth is happening Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about it at this point, because greetings from Los Angeles, California. This week's episode is called Adventures in Love and Letting Go, and we're getting into the nitty-gritty of poetic justice, and I'm very, very excited about that. But first, a little trust and believe. Now, I know at this point, some of y'all motherfuckers is tired of this segment, but let me tell you something about this segment. The reason why it's happening so often is because I'm always looking and digging for more Black films that I haven't seen, obviously on a popular scale, like certain classics that I've missed along the way, but also looking for those movies that I've heard of off the side of my ear and haven't watched, and I really want to engage with them because oftentimes these films need a much bigger audience because they're so dope and they're not on as wide of a scope as some other films that I talk about on the podcast, like Poetic Justice, for instance, which has definitely become a very popular film. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Fear of the Black Hat. And I must reiterate that these Trust and Believes are films that I want you to trust and believe my recommendation on and seek them out. This is more than a comedy. This film is subversive. We can't let the white man tell us how to sell to our market. White Freesh? Um, the white man, no good. It deals with issues that you and I deal with every day, like how the media distorts reality. The media was trying to say that the people looting was, you know, all lazy and didn't want to work. But I tell you what, you try carrying a leather sofa all the way from like Slauson and Crenshaw down to Pico or Venice or something like that. And then going back for them matching end tables? That's some work for your behind right there. We deal with race. I, I look at people and everybody seems to be the same shade. You sure it's not the glasses? So seek out Fear of a Black Hat. This movie was released in 1993, just like today's film Poetic Justice. Don't you love that magic? You're a wizard, Harry. And this film was directed by Rusty Kandif, who also directed Tales from the Hood, another early episode of the podcast and one that was my first screening at Nighthawk. So I love this man, love his work. This film is an incredible mockumentary about a rap group called NWH, a.k.a. you guessed it, Niggas with Hats. As you can probably guess from their name, they're not like the best rap group out there. But they are always controversial, and their controversy, controversy, that is a hard fucking word to say, their controversy does reach a height, and we eventually track niggas with hats on their way to fame. Larry B. Scott, Mark Christopher Lawrence, and the writer-director of the film, Rusty Kandeev, star as the rappers Tasty Taste, Tone Deaf, and Ice Cold. Um, The three of them are just absolutely fucking excellent. Just absolutely excellent. I mean, the style of humor in this film is my favorite kind of comedy, 
comedy that is delivered very earnestly, comedy that is therefore also delivered with lots of truth, and comedy that's also sharp and feels like it was fun to do, possibly lots of improvised moments, which are perfect when you're doing a mockumentary. And also, it can be a mix of both. Like, Veep is a great example of a show, a classic show, a legendary show, in which it is tightly written, and then they also improvise and play around. So it's a great combination. I would say a city like Broad City is also like that as well. Um... Yeah, I just love when ridiculous things are delivered in a dead-ass kind of way. I love um, that there, in this film, is the rare instance in which a gay joke actually works to a certain extent in a 90s movie. It works because this gay character has lots of power. No one ever calls him a faggot, which is pretty dope and a pretty low bar, but one that does exist. Part of the joke is that he has a hard-on and he has a big dick. I don't see that as a negative attribute, so I let that slide. Does it feel stereotypical and jokey? Yes, and at the same time, it doesn't. The word faggot is uttered later on in the film in a rap... And that is still sometimes something that I'm willing to let go if it's clever enough. Like when Lil Wayne says, you faggots gay (laughs) in A Millie, I think it's funny because it's a fact. Uh, We are gay. (laughs) There are also connections to other films that we have covered on the podcast. I mentioned Tales from the Hood. And I will also mention Eve's Bayou because Casey Lemons, who is the director of Eve's Bayou, is in this film as the documentarian who is interviewing him. Interviewing the rap group, I mean. She is excellent. She is so fucking good. I had no idea. And that is a shame on me that she could be so fucking funny. I should have known since she also directed Talk To Me, a film that I would actually like to do in the podcast one day and actually screen in the theater. I think that film is very underrated. Great comedy about a radio DJ played by Don Cheadle, and he stars alongside Chiwetel Ejiofor. So I should have known that she had some sense of humor, but she is so fucking funny in this movie. And also, Casey is in Candyman, another film that we covered on this podcast. And this film also features Faison Love in an early performance and Barry Shabaka Henley in a very, very funny, very, very funny early performance. So overall, this is a film that I really fucking loved and would love to dig into this one day on the pod and find a lens to screen it through at... Nighthawk Cinema, gotta find something, gotta find something to get the people in the seats. And this film is now available to stream on the Criterion channel. And I know some of you motherfuckers out there got the Criterion channel, so check it out. And after this little ad break, we will get into the nitty gritty of Poetic Justice. Stay tuned. Here for one reason, one reason only to learn, to learn, to learn, to learn. 
Welcome back to the show, everybody. So I believe I promised you updates. <laughs> it has been a couple weeks since I recorded the last segment, and the situation that I was referring to is still confusing. And I think the most important part about it still being confusing is that it's not something that I feel like I'm relying on anymore, which is really nice and really different for me. And it also feels like I can let it rock in a way that doesn't upset my soul and doesn't affect my well-being so much, which again, is new for me. I think sometimes in these situations, I have a tendency to get a bit intense about these things and can sometimes push people and try to make them do things before they're ready to. Essentially by things, I mean like commitment. And I think that that is something that I, at this very moment in my life, am not ready for if I'm being quite honest. And I think it's good to be able to have that kind of dialogue with a person and kind of keep moving forward. I don't know, it's still fucking weird, but like I said, it's not consuming me, and that brings me a lot of peace. And a lot of these things about love and letting go and knowing when to let go within yourself and to let go sometimes of another person, of another situation, um, and just kind of knowing when that time is and when Letting go can be positive, because honestly, most of the time, it seems like it is. Uh, I think I read once by someone named Deepak Chopra (laughs) that letting go is probably one of the highest acts of love, actually. So speaking of love and letting go, let's get into the nitty gritty of poetic justice. So Poetic Justice was directed by John Singleton and it was released in 1993. It's coming up on its 30th anniversary. Oh my gosh, next year. And here's a little summary of this film. So this seminal black film in the black cinema canon tells the story of a young woman named Justice, played by Janet Jackson in her feature film debut, who is a hairdresser and a poet in L.A., and she is currently grieving the death of her boyfriend, played by Q-Tip, who Janet dated eventually IRL in real life. And her boyfriend, played by Q-Tip, was shot while they were at a drive-in movie together. So one day... She meets a mail carrier named Lucky, played to excellent perfection by Tupac Shakur, and they mix like oil and water. They don't get along at all, but there is something immediately intriguing about seeing them together. I think it kind of starts off as what can be seen as a toxic chemistry, and it evolves. And this whole situation of them not liking each other is forced upon them even more heavily when Justice's friend Aisha, played again to perfection by the queen, Miss Regina King, 
Aisha convinces Justice to come along on a weekend trip to Oakland with her boyfriend, Chicago, played by Joe Torrey, who is also bringing his best friend along. His best friend, Lucky, played by Tupac. So now we follow the four of them on a journey from L.A. to Oakland as they make many pit stops along the way and in some cases grow closer together and in other cases things fall apart. This film also stars Tyra Farrell, who plays Jesse, who is Justice's boss at the hair salon. And what a great character. What an honest and just very real character at all times. And I like the fact that there is also a real dynamic between her and Justice. You know, you can tell that Jesse really values Justice as one of her employees and as a friend of hers. And she also just gets real with her when necessary. I mean, there is a bit of a, I would say like half generational gap. And honestly, that can be enough. (laughs) A good five, six years between two people can honestly really be enough in terms of life experience and in terms of things like love. So I just love this character. Jennifer Lewis, another queen, is also in this film and brings so much to, like, one scene, I think. Uh, She plays Lucky's mom, and it's great to see her and Tupac together. Oh, my God, what a legendary pairing. Uh, I mean, and this is also, I have to say, a legendary pairing because this casting is excellent because it was cast by Robbie Reed, the queen, her highness of casting in black cinema. Oh my God, she just continues to come up and just does excellent work. This film also stars Roger Gunnivor Smith in a gay role. He does a fine job. Roger Gunnivor Smith sometimes is giving us a little too much and I think he knows that and I think that's like part of his thing. I like his work here though. I do, I really do. And there's also in this film cameos from Tone Loke, another musician. This movie is filled with musicians. And what I love about Tone Loke, besides his music, is, you know, we did last season talk about Bebe's Kids. And Bebe's Kids is coming up this year at our Adventures in Black Cinema screenings. Fingers crossed. You know, nothing is a fingers crossed situation like asking a distributor to play their film sometimes. It's uh, crazy sometimes. But I do plan on showing Bebe's Kids. Um, We also have... Billy Zane and Lori Petty in this film, and they are part of the fake movie that Janet and Q-Tip are watching at the beginning of the film at the drive-in. And I think I plan on talking about this scene later, but it sets things up in a really, really cool way. And it's a very smart device that John Singleton uses to drop us in to, yeah, I think I'm talking about later. If I don't, I'll add it, I guess. I guess! Then we also have Maya Angelou in this film. And this is great to just see Maya Angelou, of course. Duh. It's also really cool that Maya Angelou wrote the poetry that Justice writes and recites in this film. So I love that. I love that a lot. That makes me really happy. You know, we did also do Maya Angelou's film in our first season, Down in the Delta, These connections, children, these connections in black cinema are very important. They are very important. So yeah, that's just, 
a beautiful thing to see always. So let's do some fun facts. Quite a famous story from set is that Tupac got into a fight with an extra who turned out to be a blood. You know, Tupac felt the type of way because one of his female friends was robbed by a blood. Apparently, Tupac pulled a gun on the extra and Maya Angelou came by to calm him down. And I think that that is such a beautiful story because you have, speaking of generations, what I was talking about before with Justice and Jesse's characters, a real-life situation in which a person from an older generation knows how to access what is needed in certain moments with someone from a younger generation. And this is an older poet, a legendary poet, helping out a younger legendary poet Just a beautiful moment of art colliding, of Black people having each other's backs. And sometimes it can really feel like the older generation does not have our backs sometimes. And I think that's a thing that is explored in this film as well as a theme in Maya Angelou's scene. And I think seeing the reality of it that they do when we need it in those right moments is really great. And I think that's also kind of a theme in my life right now. Ah, yikes. Yikes! Yikes! All right. (laughs) I just called myself old, in case you didn't doubt us. Fun fact number two is that at some point during filming, Tupac left the set to participate in the 1992 L.A. uprising and returned to the set the next day. This, to me, also reveals and represents Tupac's true nature that we've heard so many stories about and have just witnessed through his actions when he was alive and his words when he was alive that Tupac stands and, well, Tupac stood for so many beautiful things and the fact that he would leave something that was so important to him to go to something that was perhaps, seems like even more important to him is great and I don't think a move that a lot of people would have made. Um, Another beautiful story about Tupac. We miss him so much. Uh, Fun fact number three, other actors who auditioned and were considered for the role of justice included Kim Fields, who, interestingly enough, kind of gives me Janet Jackson vibes sometimes. You may know Kim Fields from The Facts of Life. She's wonderful. And also she was in... The Real Housewives of Atlanta at some point, wasn't she? Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that until just recently. Because I don't give a fuck about those shows. I won't say that they're bad. I've watched clips when they've been forced upon me in public places most of the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's not horrible. It's just not my thing. Um, No shade if that's your thing. Other actors who were considered slash audition for the role were Jada Pinkett, of course. Of course, duh. Lisa Bonet, which also, ooh, woo, 
that would have been really interesting, honestly. And Monica Calhoun was also, also considered. So my first experience watching this film is that this was another film that my parents had on VHS that I was never allowed to watch as a kid. So I didn't end up watching it until some point during quarantine. Do not come for me. This movie was released when I was three years old. Do not come for me. (laughs) And when I finally did watch it, it really wasn't at all what I was expecting. I knew there was an element of love, of course, but I wasn't sure how it was handled, how it would manifest. And I think this time around, watching it a second time, I appreciated even more how John sets up the circumstances and life behind the pain of Justice and Lucky. I think because of my expectations and the place that I was in at the time, I liked it, but I didn't love it the first time I saw it. The second time around, I found myself noticing and feeling things on a much deeper level because I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm going through all of this myself, this growth period, this growth period that honestly feels more profound than it has in the past. And I'm very grateful for it. Growing sometimes can be painful. We all know this. That's why they're called growing pains. And yeah, I think things are turning around. I just gotta stay focused. I just gotta sit on my shit, you guys. And finding a balance of that is something that is struck very nicely in this film. So let's get into these themes of love and letting go. All right, so love and letting go. Like I said before, the two certainly go hand in hand. And before we talk about the relationships in this film... I want to talk about the first scene in the film, the very first scene in the film, throw a little scene spotlight on it, which is something I think I want to do sometimes when I want to talk about a scene that brings a lot of importance to the film that isn't necessarily maybe talked about a whole lot and kind of what is happening here. What I think John Singleton is trying to do and say with this scene. So the very first thing that you see in this film is this beautiful shot of the city to Rhapsody in Blue. And you see the scene of the movie that Janet Jackson and Q-Tip are watching at the drive-in. And it's this movie that does star Lori Petty and, oh my God, dude from Titanic, why am I forgetting your name? Uh, Oh my God, what is this man's name? Billy Zane. I almost lost my fucking mind, y'all. Billy Zane and Lori Petty are in this scene and they are definitely both, in their own way, iconic actors from the 90s. Iconic white actors from the 90s. And they're essentially acting out this scene that is very dramatic, very overwritten, very on the nose, and very, just like very, very white. You're good. The wine, candles, the dinner. What's next? 
um, let me set the mood. And I think what John Singleton is trying to say is that, like, you're not about to get a love story like this in any way, shape, or form. Like, this is just going to be different, and it's going to be more realistic. It's going to be more grounded. It's going to be messier than that, even though what the white folks are doing is quite messy. And even things like the production design are very on the nose. Like, everything is very blue, and it's... So great to see these two because they are definitely fun actors for sure. If you don't know where Lori Petty is from, she was in A League of Their Own and Orange is the New Black. Those are probably two of the bigger things she's been in. She's definitely been in a bunch of other stuff, but I think that she is quite lovely. And literally this scene bleeds into Oh, no pun intended. Rest in peace, Markel. Rest in peace, bro. It goes right into the scene where Markel gets shot about a couple minutes later. And this is the first time that we really see Janet Jackson acting in a film. She had done TV before. And some of these first moments, you're just like, ooh, is this a little shaky? Is Janet a little shaky? I don't know. But then the second she asks Tupac to get her some jujubes, you're like, yeah, yeah, she's good. I mean, it's a tough role in a lot of ways. And I think that she really does excel later on in the film, especially when she's dealing with Tupac and Regina King. I just think that they are both two people that you can't help just like bounce your energy off, you know? They are just oozing with charisma and talent, and so is Janet Jackson. But And to have all of those people playing together is, is really quite wonderful. And, you know, the delivery of the poetry is not always great, and it's kind of tough because it is a film, So and it's voiceover. So it's kind of tough sometimes to balance all of those elements. You know, you still want it to sound natural. And in a way, you don't want it to sound too much like poetry, but in some form or fashion, it really has to. I think someone who does this perfectly in the film is honestly Maya Angelou. I mean, because this is just, you know, her entire life. Like, every time she speaks in this film... It sounds like she's reciting poetry. I think that's just really what her aura was. I think that is something that would have enhanced the film and maybe part of the reason why, well, no, it may have been, but honestly, the reason why this film wasn't well-received at the time is because the majority of critics are cisgendered, straight, white men. So... When there are films like this that are really just all about the Black experience, like, for us, by us, they, like, they don't know what's happening. They can't function. Like, these are the same people who said Sister Act 2 is no good because the kids didn't do drugs. And they're in the inner city, so they're, quote-unquote, supposed to be doing drugs. Like, you can't take people at their word. And speaking of Maya Angelou, at the barbecue, see what I did there? I would 100% have crashed that barbecue just like they did. That is like 
that's a dream of mine. Like, that is a dream. Oh my God, the food looks so good. Folks definitely do the electric slide at some point. Which is fucking accurate. If you go to a black family barbecue, or really any black family function, where there's music, where there's a floor, it doesn't even have to be a floor. It could just be like in this movie and like in real life. Grass outside. And they do not, if they do not do the electric slide, you have to leave immediately. You have been compromised. I just, I don't know who those people are. And it may be too late, honestly, especially if you haven't also just heard Gotta Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. It's time to go. Um, But these relationship dynamics are so interesting. We have two main couples here, of course. We have Justice and Lucky, played by Janet Jackson and Tupac. And then Aisha and Chicago. And Aisha is played by Regina King. So first, honestly, Aisha and Chicago, like, their relationship is so interesting because... At first, they kind of seem like the stable, steady ones. And then, like, the air starts to leak out of the tire. You start to see these certain, like, cracks in their foundations and in their coping mechanisms. They both have really bad coping mechanisms. Whoo! Terrible. And let me tell you, alcohol will always fuel a fire. That shit, oh my god. Oh my God. I just went through a situation whew, a few weeks ago. Mm, mm-mm. Alcohol can fuel a situation. My situation was not quite like Aisha in Chicago, where there's lots of anger and resentment and all of these issues that bubble up. My experience was not like that. It was just messy in a different way. But yeah, this relationship is incredibly messy. I mean, when it comes to a head and Chicago hits Aisha, like it's a it's a very impactful moment. And I think it's impactful to really see everyone fully do the right thing in that situation. It's crazy to say that we do live in a world where that wouldn't necessarily be the case. And, you know, Tupac asks him this incredibly important question. You couldn't think of a better way to handle that? Like, for real? For real? Like, it's this whole thing with... I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But all I will say is when people defend Chris Brown with the Rihanna thing, it's it's annoying. Yeah, it's annoying. Everyone did the right thing in this situation. And this man deserved to get kicked in the balls. Are there things that Aisha does to kind of egg this on? Sure. That still does not justify Chicago's actions whatsoever. It really calls into question so many things about relationships, you know, why we end up in relationships like that. Because like I was saying on the outside, they seem so stable. And 
I think that that is something that many people in the world of this film that we, you know, may have not seen or other people in the shop have also probably perceived it to be that way. And I hope after the events of this movie that Aisha was someone who broke herself out of this cycle because that shit can really be a cycle and come in various, various ways. And, you know, you really care about her as a character in a lot of ways. And yeah, I hope she found that. I genuinely do. And, you know, always getting that good Regina Kang energy. Man, she is so good. Like, just thinking about all of the work that she's done from a very young age to still doing it incredibly well, top of her game, directing the shit out of movies, like, uh, that is just a moment in which I had to stand the queen, Miss Kang. Now, Justice and Lucky, their shit starts off terribly. So there is the famous scene where Justice and Lucky meet at the hair salon with the you wanna smell my punani bit. Let's cut the bullshit, okay? Now what do you really, really want from me? You wanna smell my punani? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. You like that, huh? Mm-hmm. That Justice and Jesse play on Lucky when he first meets them. And they also have this big fight in the UPS truck on the first bit of their road trip. And, you know, Tupac is genuinely rude to her. Yes, this is an episode where, per usual, I will call out the men on their toxic behavior. You know, while not excusing things the other party has done, it always does take two to tango. These brothers is toxic, but Lucky turns it around. So, yeah, he's really, really rude to her, and she leaves, and they eventually pick her back up again. And Justice and Lucky's relationship actually reminds me a lot of, and this is me, like, pushing up my glasses from the bottom of my nose to the very top, the William Shakespeare play, Taming of the Shrew. This reminds me so much of the Petruchio and Katarina characters in that play, which was, of course, adapted into a wonderful 90s film called 10 Things I Hate About You. So this kind of dynamic of these two angry, hurt people coming together and clashing and then eventually falling in love is really interesting to me. And, you know, this is without the pretense in the play that, you know, Lucky is not trying to tame justice. He may be trying to, maybe he is in his own ways and it doesn't work. And, you know, certain things bring them together. I think there's this aspect of healing that really brings them together in a really nice way. And I would like to do that with someone. You know, I think I have discovered this own pattern of mine. Well, two things in which I end up with people or being interested in people who need like a lot of healing (laughs) and they don't really seem like that willing to do it, which is just 
crazy to me. Like, I mean, I get it. I There was a point in my life where I don't think I was aware enough to know for sure that I could get better and improve in my life and, you know, heal and grow and change. I guess some people just really don't recognize that for a while at certain times or I don't know, maybe some people don't realize it at all. But I think having the ability to heal with someone is a very beautiful thing. And that is the beautiful fucking thing about the trajectory of this relationship between Lucky and Justice. You know, does it start off in a way that is toxic? Absolutely. And should one endure that longer than necessary? Absolutely not. They're in a situation where they're kind of forced to be by the what the story needs. Like they need to be kind of enclosed in this space together and kind of like forced to be together. But please, PSA to everyone, including myself, do not force yourself to stay in a situation that makes you feel shitty about yourself and people that make you feel shitty. Even though there is an obvious attraction there, like that's just not enough anymore. It's not cutting it. It's not cutting it. Like there's gotta be communication and healing and that is really what they do, you know? John Singleton sets up both of their backgrounds so incredibly well and shows us what they're going through before they meet each other and like as they're meeting each other. So Justice is grieving the death of Markel. You know, she's wearing all black. She's not taking care of herself in the way that she used to. She's grieving. She's, you know, she's a human being. And... Tupac's character, Lucky, is dealing with this situation with his baby mama and his kid, his daughter. And she is an addict, and she's also doing some other fuck shit. I mean, it's a really bad situation to the point where when he's leaving the apartment with his daughter, his baby mama's son, who I believe is Tone Loke's son, asks if he can go too. Like, it's sad. So he's dealing with a lot. He's dealing with a lot, and he brings his daughter over to Jennifer Lewis, which I noticed it's funny. The last movie that I saw Jennifer Lewis in was in The Preacher's Wife at our screening of it at Nighthawk, and she's a very big smoker in that movie. And in this movie, as Tupac's mom, she is telling him to not smoke indoors. It's great. It's I love those little, those little connections. Um, yeah, that spark of interest that is shown... At the barbecue is really nice. And the way it evolves at the fair, too, it's just really about being open with someone and, like, communicating. And uh, I don't know why even just saying those words and thinking about it makes me just, like, I don't know. It's tough out here, y'all. This movie made me think of... So many things that are happening with me, obviously. Just like learning about patterns. And that second thing that I was talking about before when I said there's two things that I've been kind of learning is this fear of intimacy, which you can definitely see in Justice and Lucky's beings, you know, and they come from different places. Justice is grieving. I think being intimate with someone after someone has been taken from you is really, really hard to do. Like, really hard to do if you love somebody like that. 
and Tupac situation of being in a relationship that obviously just did not end up well with someone who was not well, it can really take a toll on you and take a toll on the kind of trust issues you have. And so you kind of build up a fear of intimacy, which makes you seek these people who can't give you what you need like consistently. And I've been learning that and it's bad. It's not bad. It's nuanced. (laughs) I'm going to stop calling things good and bad because everything is nuanced. But yeah, this movie reminded me so much of that in so many ways and did give me hope that, you know, with time, things can grow and change, but you can't necessarily bank on that. Like, people have to put in effort. I love that Justice and Lucky at the end of this movie, like, really put in effort to grow and change and really meet each other at a really beautiful way. Like, you see Tupac in this new fucking shirt. Oh, oh my God, he looks so hot. Tupac is so hot in this movie. Tupac is hot in every movie he's in because Tupac is hot. That's just the way it is. Uh, and, you know, you see Justice starting to find ways to move forward. And speaking of justice, justice for fucking Janet Jackson, y'all. Justice for Janet Jackson. Like, this white man, Justin Timberlake, done ruined the careers of two queens. And, you know, Britney's getting some justice. We need justice for Janet. Like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. For fucking shame. And yeah, this fear of intimacy and kind of seeking people in this weird way that I know deep down in my bones cannot give me intimacy because they are just so fucking all over the place and like need to deal with issues with their parents. You know, maybe I do too. I don't know. But at least that's something that I can acknowledge and actively work on. If you don't acknowledge it and work on it, how's it gonna happen? And these two characters really do that beautifully in this film. So in a lot of ways, this film is telling us how to let go for love and how to let go of love and when to do one or the other very clearly with both of these relationships and many of the themes in this film. And, you know, I think that's really why I connected so much to it this time. In conclusion, this film is such a wonderful exploration of relationship dynamics and shows the realistic nature of them not always being healthy and when to stay and when to go. There's a difference between being in something that is straight up toxic with a romantic flair to it and needing time to really be with yourself and figure things out in separation before trying to heal together. And this is something that I wrote weeks ago that I need to really remind myself of. You know, it it can't be a one-sided journey. There are some, like the women at the hairdresser at the end of this film, who will certainly believe that Justice shouldn't have forgiven Lucky for blowing up on her and blaming her for his cousin's death. That is something that happens near the end of the film. 
Uh, Lucky finds out that his cousin was shot and he blames Justice because if she hadn't bugged out in the beginning, they would have gotten there on time and he could have prevented this. You know, blaming, using his pain to blame someone else. My opinion is that she saw that that was coming from a moment of pain and that's something that she knows all too well while moving through her grieving phase and being deemed an angry bitch. (laughs) I like to think that they saw each other for real and saw what they were going through and that is part of what brought them together. Now, is that a real relationship or is it a trauma bond? I don't know. We can only guess, but I think this movie gets this whole exploration right. And it contains the legendary song Again by Janet Jackson, which was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. I heard from a friend today and she said you were in town suddenly. true cherry on top of this film. And Poetic Justice is now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. So check it out or check it out again. And after this little commercial break, we will be getting into this week's You Better Act Award. Stay tuned. The time has come for this week's You Better Act Award. Yes! And if it is your first time at Adventures in Black Cinema, the You Better Act Award is an award that I give out every single episode of the show to celebrate a performance that I think deserves all the love, all the praise, all the attention. So I bestow that performance with that love, praise, and attention on my show. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please. Sheila Atim in The Underground Railroad. So The Underground Railroad is an adaptation of a book by Colson Whitehead. And this miniseries, limited series adaptation was spearheaded by Barry Jenkins. And it's on Amazon. It came out in 2021. Now... I do have some issues with this adaptation. I read the book a few years ago and absolutely loved it from top to bottom. It's a very difficult book to read because it is a very realistic and accurate depiction of what slavery was like in America. And I feel like the first three episodes or parts of this series were actually really perfect. Uh, Very much a faithful adaptation to this wonderful, perfect novel. And this book is pretty short, so I was wondering why there were so many parts of the series, because I think this is something 
if done could have been done in eight parts or so, if they were all equal length. So when they start getting into the backstory of Ridgeway, who is played by Joel Edgerton, who is the bounty hunter in the book, it's, I don't like it. Whenever they veer from the source material, I really don't like it because it is something where you really didn't have to do that much at all. Um, There are some times in which it works, like... Barry does bring the aspects of the Underground Railroad the way it's represented in the book as a as a real railroad. He does that very, very well. But the stuff that's added, I just don't really like very much. And that kind of threw me off from something that I think could have been really excellent and perfect as well. Like, don't get me wrong, all the stuff that Barry does is great, but... Some of the episodes that are written by other people, and I'm so sorry if you know these people, I'm so sorry if you are one of these people, just were not as strong in my opinion, and that is my opinion. And one of the strongest things about this series was Sheila Atim playing the main character, Cora's mother, Mabel. Now, Mabel's whole story is that she escaped from the plantation when Cora was a child, and Ridgeway is obsessed because Mabel is the only enslaved person that he has not been able to find. Now, the way that the series deals with this, I don't know if it's different than the book. I feel like it is. I cannot remember. But Sheila Atim imbues Mabel with so much. She is so grounded. She is... She just knows exactly what she has to do, takes a plan of action, and you see that in the character, and you also see that in the acting. Now, Sheila, I remember from, again, St. Anne's Warehouse, she was in a production of The Tempest that was done by this director and this company that was doing a trilogy of three Shakespeare plays over the course of a few years with all women, and all of these plays were set in a women's prison. Now, Sheila played Ferdinand in The Tempest, and she was absolutely excellent and brilliant in this role. And man, is she such a standout. As Mabel, she's really only in one episode that's about her and how she escaped and everything. And oh man, is it just beautiful and heartbreaking. To me, one of the best in the series because Sheila just carries. She carries and she's incredible. So there's definitely overall good acting in this series, but Sheila, definitely 100% a standout. And if you're interested in checking out the Underground Railroad series, I think you should. It is available to stream on Amazon Prime. And I'm looking forward to seeing what more Sheila does. I know Sheila is in the Halle Berry directorial debut bruised that is on netflix and she's definitely in something coming up soon that's a really big deal yeah y'all she's gonna be in the next gina prince by the wood movie with viola davis oh my god i can't wait for that that's gonna be incredible and john boyega is also in it and so is tusu who played cora in the underground railroad so that's gonna be That's going to be really great. And apparently she might also be in a Game of Thrones prequel. Uh, If it happens, I don't know. We'll see. But again, check out the Underground Railroad and be on the lookout for Sheila Atim. She is definitely one to watch. 
So, some food for thought in closing. My question for this week is, where do you think Justice and Lucky's relationship would be today? Like, do you think they stayed together? Do you think they had kids? Do you think they continued to grow and let go of some of those old things, old habits, and really shed and let go in order to love? Or did they let go of the love? Be sure to comment on our post on Instagram and follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple and give us a rating if you'd like. And also follow the podcast on Spotify. Thank you so much to the team per usual. We are back. We are black and we are still doing the damn thing. We got Matt Mozzarella, our audio engineer. We have Cindy Edward, our production assistant. We have Miss Amanda Seals, our executive producer, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy TV Series at the Image Awards for Insecure for her excellent work on the final season of Insecure. And I should say that Poetic Justice does in some ways remind me of the final season of Insecure in that you know no spoilers but a relationship that did end up happening at the end of the series did come from love and letting go so it's a nice little thing there and I should mention that our next Adventures in Black Cinema screening is coming up soon honeys it'll be on Monday February 14th Valentine's Day and we will be screening Love and Basketball on 35mm film at our Nighthawk Cinema Prospect Park location so definitely get your tickets you'll definitely see posts about that on Instagram and such go on nighthawkcinema.com to get those tickets and again night is spelled n-i-t-e and next time on the podcast we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of spike lee's crooklyn i am very excited for that y'all gonna get on me but that'll be a first watch for me and until then stay safe stay black and stay blessed i love y'all bye Oh, it's over. Great.